0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
1: Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing.
0: Uh, You've never heard of my guest. Will Bunch is the national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And he's written a book entitled After the Ivory Tower. Frankly, not a great title. Look, I've written some number one New York Times bestsellers. I know how to title a book. Rush Limbaugh is a big fat idiot and lies and lying liars who tell them. A fair and balanced look at the right. After the Ivory Tower is not a great title. It is, however, a really important book. Now, The Ivory Tower refers, of course, to higher education, to college, the the university. But after The Ivory Tower, not, not not a great title, but really fascinating book. And let me tell you why. It makes the argument and proves the argument that an enormous source of the division in our country today Is how our nation's approach to higher education changed over the last 75, 80 years. And it starts with the end of World War II. Now I'm I'm 71, I'm a baby boomer. My dad's generation fought and won World War II. In nineteen forty-four, Congress passed the GI Bill, which gave that generation of mainly white men, gave them a free college education, plus a stipend. It, it gave them free college and money for housing and for food, so they could go to college. Now, up until World War II, only about five percent of American adults had a college education. College was for the elites. Critics of the G.I. Bill said that the thing was a big waste, that giving these guys coming back from World War II a higher education was just going to be a big waste. They weren't college material. Now, these are guys who had lived through the Great Depression, were hardened by World War II. These guys became the greatest generation. These guys became our scientists and engineers, doctors, businessmen, artists, public servants, and they were given, given their college education plus housing and an allowance And what's more, college continued to be inexpensive for the next couple of decades, plus, almost free. A Pell Grant used to pay for 75% of a college education. Then in the 1960s, Ronald Reagan ran against Berkeley in California, the University of California at Berkeley. And Reagan said, Well, we've got to stop paying for these kids to develop their intellectual curiosity. He said that. Then in the 80s, the fairness doctrine went away. Broadcasters no longer would have to present both sides of an issue, and an obese college dropout, Rush Limbaugh, built an empire based on a foundation of racism. Have have you ever noticed that everyone on the FBI Most Wanted list looks like Jesse Jackson. He said that. Homophobia, he gave regular reports on gay men dying of AIDS and would play I'll Never Love This Way Again while doing it. Hating feminazis and environmentalists and scientists, intellectuals and elites in general and hippies and their lifestyle, including drugs, calling my friend Jerry Garcia, a dead doper. Even though Rush became so badly addicted to OxyContin that he was tried for doctor shopping and lost his hearing, he became not a dead doper, but a deaf doper. No wonder Rush got the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Without Rush, there would be no President Donald Trump. Meanwhile, the assault on the cost of College continued and Republican politicians in in state after state skyrocketed the cost of a higher education, even as a college degree became more and more essential to building a a middle class life. So young people became saddled with debt. Heather McGee on an earlier podcast told us that the average African-American family headed by a college graduate has less net wealth than the average family of a white high school dropout. Meanwhile, affluent American families were able to get SAT prep, get prestigious high school internships during the summer, go to space camp, and get them into elite colleges that set them on a prosperous path. And working class folks in red areas of the country saw jobs leave, saw more oxycontin and decided that college debt was just not worth the risk so we have this divide when Donald Trump in 2016 said I love the poorly educated a lot of blue america scoffed but he was tapping into a deep well of resentment that was key to his victory in in 2016 and that is essential into understanding where we are politically right at this very moment so that is the subject of today's conversation and today will bunch will provide you a perspective of why we're where we are today that i think is essential before we get to will though uh just a bit about donald trump and his uh legal troubles which got much worse in the last uh, few days there's been all this conjecture of what Merrick Garland is going to do in terms of prosecuting uh, the former president. Usually, you've been hearing, does Garland go for the easier to prove but less serious offense involving the classified and top-secret documents he kept as resort and lied about over and over again, or do you take on the more serious charge of trying to overturn the 2020 election, a far more serious charge but harder to prove in a, a court of law, presumably. Well, yesterday, that that seemed to change because even as the Mar-a-Lago piece has become what appears to be a stunningly easy case to prove, they, they've got videotape now of the documents being moved by his caretaker who has given up the ghost. He's talked. And you just have to think, Why did Trump do all this unless he's hiding some terrible monumental crime that has compromised our national security? This, it appears to me, has become both a slam dunk in proving and far, far more serious than we know. Did he sell secrets to foreign powers? If you know Trump, he's done this for some nefarious reason, quite possibly money, or he's being shaken down. Uh, by the Russians. Who, who knows? So that one, yep, easy to prove. But the attempt to steal the election and the insurrection, is that really that hard? Here's some of the stuff that was nailed down uh, yesterday. I'm recording this on uh, Friday and the hearing was Thursday. He knew he lost. <laughs> We've learned he told Mark Meadows, yeah, I know I lost but it would be embarrassing to admit it. Meadows said to Hutchinson, the Cassie Hutchinson, a lot of times he'll tell me that he lost, but he wants to keep fighting it. Can you imagine George H.W. Bush coming up with that? Well, we really got clobbered there. Embarrassing, but don't want to acknowledge it. Don't want to do that. Why, why, would we, why would we do that? People would be saying, hey, Bush is saying he lost. Wouldn't be prudent. Just say we won in a landslide. Either it's true or it isn't. Just say it's true. Just say we won. That's it. We won. And if it comes in an armed insurrection, so be it. Prudent thing here, retain power at all costs. <laughs> this is Bannon before the election. And what Trump's going to do is declare victory, right? He's going to declare
2: victory, but that doesn't mean he's a winner. He's just going to say he's a winner.
0: Roger Stone, same damn thing. Uh, Some footage was obtained via subpoena. Uh, The 10 minute clip is an excerpt from the 170 hours of footage of film crew recorded uh, while following Stone for a documentary called A Storm foretold in the video clip dated November one stone can be seen speaking to two men at an unspecified location saying he hoped they would be celebrating after the votes were in this is the quote i really do suspect it'll still be up in the air and when that happens the key thing to do is to claim victory stone said (laughs) possession is nine tenths of the law no, we won. Fuck you. Sorry, over. We won. You're wrong. Fuck you. <laughs> okay. Uh, Zoe Lofgren, uh, one of the uh, members of the committee, said that Brad Parscale, the uh, Trump Trump's former campaign manager, told the committee that he understood as early as July that Trump would say he had won the election even if he lost. This is going to be pretty damn easy to prove. I'm sorry. Now, is this going to make any difference in the midterms? You would hope so. But things are just so screwed up. Our information universes are now so completely separate. And this is very frightening. The best we can do here is just try to shed some light on why that's the case. And that's why I'm talking with... Will Bunch today. Hopefully, uh, this will provide you with a useful perspective on why we are so divided. So, we got a great one today, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babble.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile,
1: we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. Forty five dollars upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than forty gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at Mintmobile.com
0: This is, this puts education right at the center of where we are right now in terms of divide in this country. Right?
2: i be- I believe it is at the center. I mean, I mean, certainly you see it in the um, you know, polling data, which shows every election cycle, more and more the Democrats are becoming the party of people with college degrees, and more and more the Republicans. Uh, not only are the party of people without college diplomas, you know, the, the working class voter, but that's, that's who they've been tailing their pitch and appeal to more and more. So, what they call now the college-non-college divide, I mean, this is a term we weren't using until a few years ago, but really over time, it's come to define our politics. And, you know, I wanted to understand why. I mean, college, it's not logical that college would be the thing that divides us. So I wanted to find out why it was and what is it about college itself or higher education, perhaps put better, um, that causes that?
0: Well, the book frames it so well. And the first history you kind of talk about is the GI Bill. Prior to World War II, what percentage of Americans had got college degrees, like 5%?
2: Yeah. Hardly anybody in America uh, attended college before World War II. 5%, you know, you're talking about historically wasp elite families going to Ivy League schools and a small growing professional class, but hardly anybody. Most most people actually during World War II, the majority of Americans didn't finish high school. You know, teenagers went to work in factories, they went to work on farms, and that was the norm. And so, that's one reason why the GI Bill and the success of it took everybody by surprise.
0: Okay, so the GI Bill basically said everybody, mainly mainly guys, right, coming back, we're we're gonna give them free education. And there's this some controversy, like, oh, it's gonna be a lot of hillbillies getting college yeah. education. And it turns out these hillbillies, these guys coming back from World War II, really made use of this <laughs> in a yeah, way that became yeah. uh, the engine. In America, for what happened to us in the fifties?
2: Yeah, there's there's an amazing quote. The president of the University of Chicago, who was this kind of curmudgeon, who also famously banned their successful football program, but he um, <laughs> he, he also said that uh, that these returning vets would make their campuses into quote hobo jungles, unquote. You know, and that was the perception. Look, the perception was that the average working class or middle class American was not college material. I mean, this was a myth that a lot of these colleges held on to that, you know, it was kind of an early version of the meritocracy myth that most Americans weren't worthy of a college education. And like you said, these GIs just shattered that myth. Um, they had been through the Great Depression. They'd been through World War II. They came back. They knew what a golden opportunity this was. And, and it was. I mean, the GI Bill not only paid full tuition and, and not just for, you know, your basic state university, but if you went to Harvard, it would pay your full tuition. Um, and it, it, you got a living stipend, mm-hmm. you know, your, your books, everything was covered. It was really an experiment of what would happen. If we made college a public good, the way that K-12 education had been established as a public good in America. And it was just phenomenally successful, you know, and it got Americans realizing that college could be the American dream for a lot of people, more than just the vets, you know, because in kind of a virtuous cycle, you had this huge baby boom that you were on the vanguard of, Al, and colleges started expanding for these GIs and they just kept growing to cope with this baby boom that was coming.
0: And everything uh, seemed to be going fine <laughs> in your book. <laughs> yes. Until, until Ronald
2: Reagan. <laughs> it's like the plot twist in every political nonfiction story. Well, you know,
0: like. you know, because we've had to live through Trump and everyone's going like, you know, I guess Reagan wasn't so bad. And then you read your book and you go, oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you have to remember what he was all about. He built on grievance politics, just like Trump did. It was just an earlier version of it. The grievance was that we've given these young people an amazing opportunity to go to college. Uh, Just just to set up real quickly, I mean, one of the features of the golden age of college in the 40s, 50s, 60s was an emphasis on liberal education. You had more students majoring in the humanities, more students majoring in liberal arts. The overriding belief and, and surveys back this up was that young people felt they were going to college to develop a meaningful philosophy of life <laughs> that it was that it, right which uh, you know tell that to the day student right so uh, you know and there was a swing at that time away from careerism so these kids you know they, they valued things like critical thinking and as, as you know well they mm-hmm. they turned their critical thinking towards things like racial segregation in the south initially and then as the we got deeper into the 60s, they turned their attention heavily towards the hypocrisy of the Vietnam War, which you know had a personal impact on. A I lot remember of that. People. Yes, you do remember that. So, mm-hmm. so um, a conservative establishment freaked out over this. You know, Ronald Reagan's famous line in 67, the first year that he uh, served as governor in California, was that taxpayers shouldn't be subsidizing the intellectual curiosity. Of young people, and that became <laughs> that became that became the right that became you know. the prevailing uh, philosophy. And and what what that really means is he was foreshadowing what actually happened, which is the privatization of college. In other words, you know, it's college well, did let, not. Let's be,
0: start with Berkeley yeah. because yes, he ran please. against Berkeley or he ran on Berkeley. So explain that to the folks.
2: Well, Berkeley, Berkeley um, you know, it, it, it might shock some people, although, although there's been a lot of chatter about this. So maybe some folks know this. But I mean, the University of California historically had been tuition free. I mean, it was basically, you know, burned into the state's constitution and its identity that it would give free college education to its young people. And, you know, there there were some fees and whatever, but it was basically essentially, you know, to buy books. and But it was basically free. Coincidentally or not, it also kind of was the vanguard of young people and this idea that they weren't children who were like wards of the university, that they had free thought and free speech. And uh, there was an episode... <laughs> crazy, right? So, there was this episode in, in 1964 and it was right at the height of a lot of politicking around the civil rights movement that Berkeley tried to limit where students could hand out political materials, ban it basically. And um, the, the protest was called the Berkeley Free Speech Movement. Mm-hmm. It really predated the Vietnam protest. It was really the first kind of big campus-wide uh, outburst, and um, uh, it was a very epic event. I, I, would, I would encourage people to read up on it. I, I mean, I describe it in the book, of course. But the students won basically; they got the faculty on their side, and and this kind of flowed into Vietnam protests, which, of course, you know, spread to other campuses. So uh, it happened in 64 or sixty-five was when Reagan announced his candidacy for governor. He was a long shot. He had just made a name for himself supporting Barry Goldwater, and they urged him to run for governor. There was a seemingly popular uh, incumbent in Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's father. But Reagan seized on two things. One was, you'd also had the Watts riots. So there was a racial component. But the other thing was Berkeley. And by then you had, you know, the Jefferson airplane and the psychedelic you know, strobe lights and those blob screens or whatever you call them. and
0: Yeah. The height of civilization. I remember that.
2: Yeah. The great, the the wave is Hunter S. Thompson (laughs) called it, right? It was the peak of the peak of the wave of the sixties. And, you know, he gave a speech saying that at the Cow Palace saying that students were doing unthinkable things that he couldn't talk about. And, you know, he sexualized it and, you know, their bodies were gyrating under these strobe lights. It's really quite an incredible speech, and um, you know he, he really fueled They're resentment doing among
0: disgusting things: uh, gyrating, uh, having premarital sex, uh, disgusting.
2: They were, in his words, but you know, apparently, a lot of people bought into this. You know, a lot of middle-class folks who, who, you know, were hearing third-hand what what these young people were doing on these campuses, and were they bought into this disgust? And you know, Reagan, the the former underdog, won by a million votes. He won in a landslide, and it's interesting. He actually never he wanted to halt the practice of free tuition. He actually was unsuccessful because there was still a lot of support for <laughs> free tuition. Surprisingly, right? You know, he raised fees, he set the groundwork. By the, by the time he left office, he'd set the groundwork for tuition. And we all know that the University of California system, like like most state universities, is expensive. It's increasingly exclusive. It, uh, you know, lacks the diversity that it should have. Uh, there's all kinds of problems today.
0: And this is the ba- basic thrust of your book, which is that we went from free in California and, and for the GIs and college and, and, and cheap and cheap for everybody else and so. very cheap for everybody else and my my wife's family oh there were five kids all four girls went to college on pell grants right and some and scholarships you know the pell grant at that time was like what 75 percent of yeah, the cost exactly. college
2: and now and now it's i think 30 percent if it's even if it's even that high yeah And they expect you to make up the difference of loans when they say privatize. You know, it's a it's funny because now they do.
0: Now they expect you to take it in loans, which is we're going to get the college debt is a (laughs) big theme of this. And it's just the cost of college going from you start off with the GI Bill, all these guys coming back from the war going to college free and getting stipends. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, the apartments and books and yeah. Right. Yeah. Till to now. And then th- this is basic theme of the book. What's divided this country, because now going to college is a risk. I think there's one statistic you have where like 65% of white men think it's a risk A risky
2: gamble. A risky
0: gamble to go to
2: college. It's not. It's not worth the investment. Um, the The author of that study calls it economic fatalism. You know. You know. We we talk about, and I I know there's a lot of back and forth about how real it is. But this, we talk about economic anxiety, and and what the point he's trying to make is, it's not even anxiety. It's 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 worse than that. It's fatalism. It's not even that I'm anxious about it. It's that there's no hope for people like me.
0: And then this this is the basic becomes a basic divide in our country. This Mm -hmm. horrible horrible divide that we have you go to rush limbaugh after reagan basically mm-hmm. and talk about the culture war and he of course his show which i wrote about yes and a great, uh, great book uh, thank you incredibly racist incredibly homophobic and full th- just lying all the time mm-hmm. you know and stoking this class warfare calling women mm-hmm. feminazis and
2: in the ecological, the environmental stuff. And, oh my God! Yeah. And 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 of course the the AIDS period when you know he would play, he would you know do a role of people who died of AIDS and play you know I'll never I'll never love this way again in the background. I'm, unbelievable stuff. And um and 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 the thing is, and I may, I'd be interested to hear your take, because you're more of an authority on this subject than I than I am. But I mean, I feel like he was really skilled at making politics more cultural, you know, that he turned just rather than just making it a political discussion, he made this into, into cultural warfare. And, and again, you know, the, the, the the real dividing line of the culture was education, you know, that educated people were the, were the crux of who he was going after because people were going to college and becoming feminists or they were going to college and becoming environmentalists or, or, or the, you know, the LGBTQ culture was thriving on campus. What
0: people should, should understand is how he was very talented.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I listened
0: to a a lot of, a lot of, uh,
2: as, as, as did I. Yeah.
0: And there's a reason that he's got the presidential medal of freedom from Trump, because I think without rush, there's no Trump. Yeah. Uh, Or at least there's a straight line from And yeah, Trump, of course, said, I love the poorly educated and Democrats and a lot of people thought, what a dumb thing to say. And of course, actually, it helped him to say that.
2: Well, sure. These people who wear T-shirts calling themselves deplorables, they, they embrace these terms. Well, sure. But but Hillary didn't
0: exactly call them deplorables. She she. Called their racism, sexism, and xenophobia a basket of deplorables,
2: but they embrace this as as a badge of honor. You know, of course, I mean the mindset is that you know these people who go to college they're just they're just book smart, but they can't screw in a light bulb. Which yeah. you know, sometimes there's something. Well, the bad, point guess, is, but, but, it,
0: you know, yeah. it's that this divide has become about resentment. And the resentment, the theme of your book basically is that so much of this has been stoked by the cost of college. And also this resentment of elites, which is fueled by this, this bogus concept of meritocracy. Uh, Paul Tuff, a, a journalist who writes brilliantly about education, I had him on about his book, The Years That Matter Most, about, about college. It's about how our university system perpetuates a privilege and injustice at every level of our society, and uh, you write about it too. How affluent families can give their kids every advantage. Uh, the kids will go to uh, a great high school, a well, you know, funded suburban high school with every bells and whistles. Uh, they can get SAT prep. They they don't have to work after school, so they can get piano lessons or travel to europe or maybe get a a great internship over over the summer and you get a coach to help you with your essay about the meaningful social service you did when you had your summer off instead of having to work and then of course there are legacies if if one of your parents went to an ivy league school and are donors it's easier uh to get your kid in and of course there's there's all these other elite schools are great schools. These Ivy League schools aren't really what this is about.
2: No, because they they educate such a small sliver, you know. I mean, there's a pyramid, you know, where community colleges, are, which don't get talked about nearly enough, are really the base of the system. Um, you know, state universities like the ones we have here in Pennsylvania, like Kutztown University or Westchester, not the big names, but the basic state universities, and then you've got the flagship state universities like a Penn State. Then you've got the private schools kind of at the top of this pyramid. And it is a pyramid. They're educating a smaller sliver. I don't think it's too strong a word to say the meritocracy is rigged. Like you said, you know, these families, um, white suburban kids are coming from better schools, but their parents, like you said, have invested thousands of dollars on SAT prep and they get essay coaching to write the college essay, which of course probably helps them write better. They
0: also have the ability to do something in the summer that they can write about, or that is something on their application. Yeah, That's the for cool. foreign
2: foreign travel, right, and all those things, and or going to space camp. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. no, ex- exactly. And and, and it, but then the other, and then there is also the financial part, though, right? Because we all know that, um, uh, as, you, as you know, the uh, I mean, white family household net worth or wealth, family wealth is twenty times African American family wealth in this country. It's an unbelievable statistic. And that's exactly, you know, family wealth, you know, it's funny. Um, my education at Brown University was basically paid for because a uh, my mom's unmarried aunt, you know, for better or worse, died the year before I got accepted, you know, or I, I don't know how they would have paid for it, to be honest. But that was family wealth, you know, that was passed down to my family. And that's what happens in white households. Heather
0: McGee told me this statistic that um, a household led by a black college graduate has, uh, on average, uh, less net wealth than a household led by a white high school dropout.
2: Yeah, I, I saw that statistic somewhere recently too. It's it's, it's And a lot of remarkable. that is from
0: home ownership. Yeah. And also the debt. That black graduates yeah. of college. Which is which, all right, which increasingly
2: college. becoming college debt. Yeah, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But yeah, I mean, this, this is just a big explainer of the debt crisis. And, and, and you know, I mean, beginning back to resentment, you know, uh, again, I mean, also people from disadvantaged white communities, you know, the Rust Belt rural areas, uh, they also don't have the, the college culture. You know, they have what we were just talking about, this economic fatalism that college isn't for them. But yet, at the same time, if if they do just go straight from high school into the workforce, you know, statistics have shown uh, they're going to er- earn a lot less money over the course of their lifetime. And also, if the system is a meritocracy, which, again, is a very complicated term, but if, if we're going to define the system as a meritocracy... And we're going to define a college diploma is the ultimate badge of meritocracy. That this is the ultimate proof of your merit that you worked hard and you got a college diploma. Well, sixty three percent of Americans don't have a four year college degree, and in a way, you're saying these people are less have less merit than than the other thirty seven percent. And they they feel that and those people feel that viscerally. And I'm not, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, when, when we're talking about the voters who also feel the Donald Trump movement. There's a lot of other things going on around race and, and misogyny and, you know, it, it gets complicated and I don't want to give, I don't want well, that's that's I, 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 I to give it a free pass, you know, but, but we do need to talk about these things also.
0: We take a quick break from our discussion about how education policy divided our country. We'll be right back with Will Bunch.
1: Or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
0: Hey, everybody, we're back with Will Bunch. You talk in the book about the big sort. And the big sort is how divided we are, like physically, you know, that conservatives are in the exurbs, right? That people in the exurbs tend to be uh, a trumper.
2: Yeah, they want a big piece of land. Uh, they're very ind- individual rights, you know, gun ownership, and and all of that.
0: So people are divided into these communities, and they're also divided into where they get their information.
2: Yeah, well, one I just going to say real quickly. One of the biggest dividers, I mean, and because this really, this really, I think, speaks to the role of college. You know, I mean, it, you might be from originally from a disadvantaged Rust Belt community like Youngstown or somewhere, but. If you do excel in, in, in K through 12 and high school and go off to a good college, you're probably not moving back to Youngstown, right? You're probably going where the great jobs are. You're going to Austin, Texas, or Silicon Valley, or New York, or maybe DC if you're interested in politics. Uh, you know, you're going to places like that. And, and college-educated people, I mean, they want a certain experience. They want cool restaurants. They want cool bands. They want certain things. And the people in, in these communities who didn't have college opportunities are the left behind? I mean, they you know they have their organizations, they have their churches, they have community groups like the uh, VFW or you know whatever, and they're cohesive in that way. But it's fascinating, you know. There's been studies that communities that are very cohesive and actually have less economic activity than those that aren't. The more this divide happens, the more this big sort happens, the more it accelerates. You know, that if you're a liberal-minded college graduate, you know you don't want to live in Youngstown, you want to live in Austin, and people divide themselves and then. It sets up this system where you don't even know people with different points of view or different backgrounds the way the way that you might have 50 or 60 years ago.
0: Which is this big sort and this yeah. divide where your people are, are not just getting information because, you know, online and or just Facebook with their neighbors and, 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 is, but their neighbors. And so this divide is just becoming worse and worse and worse until yeah. we're, we're seeing what we're seeing today where we have, you know, 75% of Republicans believing the election was stolen. Uh, and it's really friggin' scary. Yeah.
2: I mean, if you live in a place like South Central, uh, South Central Pennsylvania, the real area where Doug Mastriano, who is one of the scariest politicians I've, I've seen come down the pike, uh, has emerged from, you know, you're you possibly belong to one of these very fundamentalist churches. Um you know and, and you're taking part in certain facebook groups every yard sign you see in your community is you know a trump flag or 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 for mastriano and that's the that's the cultural milieu that you know he's
0: gonna lose right
2: yeah but it could be close but he's he's gonna lose but i i have faith he's gonna lose
0: we should make it clear you're you're in pennsylvania you wrote your career's man at the
2: philadelphia Inquirer, right Correct in Daily News and Inquiry. yeah. So, um, but you know, Pennsylvania is a state that went for Trump in 2016 by yeah. 44,000 votes. So um, things things can happen here. There's a there is an energized rural conservative electorate in this state. Now they they were surpassed in 2020 by suburbanites and urban residents who came out for biden and we're we're hoping that's going to happen again in 2020 are
0: you getting any sense this is off topic a yeah, little bit yeah, but are you getting yeah. any sense since you're in pennsylvania of uh the january 6 hearings plus the, the mar-a-lago documents etc having an effect on on Republican voters saying, "Like, oh my God, this
2: is uh, yes, a, a little bit." It, it's funny. I mean, we have our, our two our two big local or, or not local, but statewide races have such characters in them. You know, between Mastriano being the scary, you know, fascist type person that he is, and then of course you have these kind of two personalities in, in Doctor Oz and and uh, John Fetterman running for the Senate, who are both. Fascinating personalities, and and that that's where kind of the energy is going, and you know, and I think why Democrats are are optimistic. I mean, I think part of it is, I mean, Oz is, has been so well defined by Fetterman as a as a New Jersey person who's just out of touch with Pennsylvania.
0: I think also Oz is kind of. Characterize himself that way,
2: yeah. Right. Everything he yeah. said, but <laughs> his his life has has characterized that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, and uh, you know, Mastriano scares people, and, and 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 also, I think you know, we we have a state, we have a large young population that uh, um, the youth turnout here is so critical in terms of which way the state's going to go. I, I, honestly, I honestly think that under thirty voters are a big reason why Joe Biden won barely in twenty twenty, and I I was you know I was terrified up until about four months ago that those people weren't going to vote in the midterms. But I'm, I'm the parent of two 20 somethings who, who actually live in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, the two big cities in the state, and um, their, their friends are, are energized now. They're they're, well, they're what energized them exactly? The Dobbs decision, I think, mainly, you know, and the Dobbs decision flowed into the bill that addresses the, you know, this um, uh, Inflation Act or whatever they call it, but it's really a climate change bill, and then it flowed into college debt forgiveness was hugely popular with young voters. I mean, hugely.
0: Well, you you talk a lot about debt and forgiving debt, and uh, also where we need to go forward. One of the things you do talk about is well, we should have free. Community and Technical College, right?
2: Yeah, we, we, we've been talking about this since 1947. Uh, it just This it's was just a big re- issue with me. I, yeah.
0: when, when I first got in, it was as, as the Great Recession was hitting. And there was this one right. county in Minnesota where there was uh, Alexandria Technical College,
2: mm.
0: where in this Douglas County, the unemployment rate was like 4% lower than the rest of the state. Huh? And it was because they had this unbelievably good uh, technical college.
2: I mean, there's a disconnect. I mean, we, we've we've channeled so much energy into trying to funnel all kids towards four year college, and I I think four year college is, is is great. I mean, there's a reason that people from other nations like China and India are anxious to send their children to American universities. And
0: and liberal arts, liberal arts, as you're saying, which is what our focus was when. <laughs> that was what I studied, and it, it develops a lot of things that employers
2: want, by the way. <laughs> yes, the, the kind of skills, critical employers want critical thinking, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so yeah.
0: liberal arts, that's not, liberal arts education is, the, you know, what I, I believe in for college. But there are folks that aren't right for that or don't want to do that. And yeah. I've seen incredibly successful people who go to a community and technical college, right. learn how to do very technical skills and like in manufacturing and in electronics and in data and make great careers. You see them working for a small manufacturer and becoming the
2: guy. Oh, yeah, you're I the mean, guy. One of the things I, I went out of my way to do in, in, in my book after the Ivy tower falls is uh, I have a long riff about... It's kind of a fluky thing. It's uh, it's this uh, trade college. Happens to be in my home county, Delaware County, right outside of Philadelphia. It's called the Williamson School of Trade. And it was just created by a millionaire of the 19th century who didn't have any heirs. And he left this money to found this school where, where orphans originally... It's not orphans now, but the original idea was that orphans would learn a trade. And um, they've kept this trade school. And if you get admitted, it's because of their huge endowment, it's free. So these kids who get into this are getting, you know, are getting a three-year education. They actually give them some other, I don't know if I would call it civics, but like, you know, moral. It's not all carpentry and masonry, although a lot of it is. But they learn those skills and employers are tripping over themselves to hire these kids at, at good salaries. And it's it's just an idea that we totally lost sight of. So when you talk about fixing it, I mean, I talk in the book about the college problem and and that's just a simple two-word way to define it, but really Really, the college problem is really a problem of what do we do with our young people when they turn eighteen, and it's not always, like you said, sending them to a four-year liberal arts college. It, you know, it could be could be a trade school, it could be apprenticeships. I, I devote the last chapter of the book to a pitch for a gap year for eighteen-year-olds of, of do you, uh, some kind of uni- community service. Community service, universal community service. I mean in theory it would probably work best if it was mandatory, but, you know, we don't really, but that's not, gonna do, happen. we don't really do. We don't, we, yeah, we, what, yeah, we do. We, do, we don't We do do mandatory very well in the, in the U S uh, in 2022, as you probably noticed during the COVID uh, situation, for example, oh, that was
0: good. That was a good thing. that came out of this, uh, this whole, uh, anti-college thing is the anti-science part.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> right. I, that, I the right
0: wing <laughs> has uh, embraced now.
2: Yeah, on I climate
0: mean, uh, and on COVID, it's uh, and, and, and what
2: and what is the deal with this QAnon? I mean, you saw these Trump is Trump has gone full QAnon. You know, he's playing. There's a QAnon song that he now plays in the background of his monologues, and people in the audience have been raising their one finger up in this kind of really? fascist-looking salute. Yeah, you have to go online. I, I, I read my last column for the Enquirer is, is about is about it. So, in other words, if if
0: for God's sakes, yes, he's their nominee, and if for God's sakes they win, meaning they're trying, you know, elect these secretaries of state, they're trying to set it up so he can he can steal it like he almost tried this time. If he becomes, we're done. It's over. It's gone. It's done.
2: Yeah, the yeah. American okay. experiment is blown up in the lab, uh, basically. Okay. Well, thanks for cheering me up. Yeah. This is why, I mean, look, we're kind of at a crossroads about higher education. It, you know, in the last two years, public trust in, in universities and higher education has plummeted. It's dropped by 19%. Um, you know, that's largely driven by Republicans, but I think, you know, Democrats are kind of, you know, normal people who aren't Republicans are fed up by the cost and some of the other issues. And it's, it's becoming yeah. a real crisis. And, and, and the two solutions are, you know, the college infrastructure can just collapse or we can try and get back to this original good ideals of the 1940s and 50s that how do we make college a public good and how do we make it more affordable? And how do we make it more accessible so more people have opportunities to do the things that they want to do? And, you know, I mean, the cynicism on the Republican side in the last year, they have really leaned hard into this. And I mean, you see Ron DeSantis doing it at his press conferences, belittling college, you know, that the idea that people, it's a waste of money that you're spending $100,000 to get, you know, they're obsessed with this idea that there's something called a gender studies degree that everybody's getting. And, and um, Charlie Kirk, uh, you know, this Horrible. Sure. Provocateur on the right has has his new book is called The College Scam, and that's how they're trying to spin it. There's, a, there's another book out. I don't, I don't think it's sold very well, but the title is just Don't Go to College. You know, 20, 30 years ago, conservatives were like, well, we need more conservative professors. We need more free speech. And all right, we can debate about that. That's a fair debate to have, in my opinion. But they've given up on that. Now it's just college is a waste. Don't don't go. And we're living in a world already of climate change denial, of COVID vaccine denial, of, of QAnon and, and, and the, the big lie about the 2020 election. I mean, all of those things, are related to a lack of critical thinking I'm not saying it's a one-to-one relationship but the more you emphasize I think the more you emphasize learning knowledge uh, you know how, how to get information and how to be- and how to develop your critical thinking skills I think will tamp down conspiracy theories or science denial and, and all these other things uh, that are happening so we so we need to have a national conversation about, how do we save higher education not not how do we throw it out in the, in the trash you know and uh, it would mean probably some radical reforms i think what biden did with uh, debt cancellation was was great it was Dead a first relief. step yeah. it was a first step you know you're talking about maybe 500 billion dollars of a um, 1.75 trillion dollar problem so you still have more than a trillion dollars in debt that's still out there. So, you need to do more on that front somehow. But if you don't do anything about the cost of college going forward, you're just going to have another, another dead mountain build up.
0: The history of this is how state governments have stopped supporting the tuition.
2: Right. That's one of the problems, you know, because we saw this with Obamacare, right, where the state's these red states wouldn't even buy into Obamacare, right? Well, they now. wouldn't
0: buy into the Medicaid expansion.
2: Yeah, the, right. Yeah, that that part of it, right. Another facet of Which our system. is society, free
0: money to them, and yeah. they wouldn't take that.
2: Right. To make a political statement. I mean, the college, the college piece is a little bit more complicated. But as you know, and I mean, our system, the really it's the states and not the federal government that are the main driver of, of public universities that of these are states, these are state systems. And, you know, the majority of states, there have been a few good states like Maryland and New York that have done an okay job, but the majority of states have let the funding dry up. I, I mean, again, I'll use my home state of Pennsylvania as an example. Um, the late 20th century. Taxpayers paid for 75% of the cost of the public university system. So it was still close to being a public good, right? And they let it drop to 25%. You know, Pennsylvania is one of the, I think, 17 states that spent more money on prisons than its universities. It's just a horrible case of neglect. And this kind of happened, in my opinion, there wasn't a lot of debate about this. It was kind of a frog and Boiling water situation where just it got slightly worse every year and there wasn't much public debate about it until it happened. And now people are wondering why going to a state university leaves you with 40 or $50,000 in debt. And this is why, you know, because they want you to make up the difference. And if you're an ambitious young middle class person, of which there are millions in this country, you know to stay in the middle class or advance and, and do the things you want to do in life, you know that at least right now, the way it's set up, you've got to have this college diploma. And so your options are to gamble on the debt or to, to not go to college and, and be guaranteed of losing out. And then,
0: of course, there are all these universities that popped up that uh, hedge funds uh, supported and that were Corinthians yes, late, and...
2: Late, late stage capitalism abhors a vacuum, you know. In fact, Goldman Sachs, the, the vampire squid, right, that looks for opportunities everywhere. I mean, they were a big backer of this company called EMDC, which uh, did things like the art school chain and, and other schools. And... and um, in fact, I knew some people who worked in this, unfortunately, but, um, uh, they had, they had, they had, I mean, they had boiler rooms. It was like Glengarry, Glenn Ross. I mean, they were using these high pressure sales tactics to, to get kids, you know, it's like, you know, you got to have a diploma and blah, 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 you know, and they set up a pricing system that basically the tuition is the maximum amount of loans that they could get through the federal government, knowing in a system where the schools get the money right away and it's the, it's the student is, you know, on the hook. Once once the kids were hooked and once the schools had their federally guaranteed loan money deposited, they gave them minimal education, right? That you know, they hired not the greatest teachers in some cases. And, you know, part of that's just because they didn't pay them very much, I guess. And uh, uh, they promised job opportunities for graduates and, and between the inferior education they got at these schools and then the arrival of the Great Recession, those job opportunities didn't materialize. So now you're tens of thousands of dollars in debt for a degree that's kind of worthless for a lot of people.
0: But Betsy DeVos really kind of liked those institutions, didn't she?
2: She worked to bring them back. You know, o- Obama, I mean, one of Obama's education policies were kind of all over the place, but one of the better things is, is, is you know, you were, you were in the Senate during those years. One of the better things about his education policy was he did aggressively try and rein in these for-profit colleges with some success and, and uh, we're still working that that out. And uh, yeah, Betsy DeVos came in to undo that because that's that's what those people do. I mean, that's their, their philosophy, you know, that everything should be privatized. And uh, so now Biden's in and now we're trying to... It's very similar to climate change where, you know, one side takes a step forward and then it gets undone by the other side. And now, I mean, they've canceled the debts of some of these kids who went to the worst schools right. like Corinthian that you mentioned, um, which is good. So that's the first step. But it, the problem is not as bad as it was 15 years ago, I don't think. The college
0: should be on on the line for the, the loan. In other words, don't you think I mean, I think you actually suggested yeah. in your book, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree. I, I didn't really get too heavily into that issue, but I do I do agree to some point, especially to the extent that colleges are prom. Absolutely, colleges have more responsibility. I think to let applicants know what they're really getting into.
0: I actually wrote a piece of legislation to do a, a certain form, so yes. that they had to do that, and that was my piece.
2: Yeah, that which it absolutely is called for. I mean, I I I, I profiled some. You know, individuals in my book who exemplify some of the trends I talk about. And for what young people experience, I talked to this young African American kid from South Jersey who didn't have college ambitions, but then he went to the Temple campus one day across the river in in Philadelphia and said, This is my dream. I want to go here. Well, of course, I mean, first of all, by crossing the Delaware River, that increased the cost, right? You know, but he was determined to go to Temple that, like, this was his goal in life. He had to go to this college. And they sold them, you know, like so many of these kids. They sold them a bill of goods. They said, "All right, well, you can if you really want to do this, you can do it. You can borrow money, and your mom can get this parent plus loan." And you probably know a little bit about the parent plus program. It's uh, there aren't limits on what people can borrow. There aren't credit checks. It's you know, and and desperate parents who want to get their kid into the right school borrow all kinds of money on this program. Like you know, so so this kid who graduated during COVID and when there were no jobs, um, he and his mom ended up owing. Uh, hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt. Six figure debt loads are not unusual. They're not the norm, but they're 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 pretty common. Um, and, and a lot of it, like you said, is because eighteen year olds not being told what they're getting into, and 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 their parents, and you know, being told you should go to your dream college and pursue your dreams, but not being told what the cost of that is in in this privatized system.
0: No, the the college should tell them right up front what this is costing you. That should be part of. The contract you pay, you know. Yeah.
2: And because people would make, you know, people would make some different decisions. You know, um, this guy told me he, he actually went to community college for a semester to get his grades up to get into Temple. And, you know, he could have gone to community college for two years. Right. And then which would have been cheaper and then transferred into Temple. And and people are starting to get smarter about this. And, and, and there's a movement going on to uh, like IBM, for example, you know, whatever we think of IBM, but
0: they um, they make business uh, machines. Right.
2: Uh, international ones. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, they've gone through all their job categories and realized that half of the jobs that they required college diplomas for, you know, don't really need a college diploma. And so they've removed those requirements and there's, there's a movement for certificate programs where you study computer technology or something for, you know, or coding for a year and get a certificate instead of going to a four year program. And that could help some people. I mean, obviously, you know, again, it could be could also be a wild west like the for-profit colleges were to some degree but um you know i always get well these can be public
0: colleges yeah. too i mean they are these are well some are yeah, some, un- yeah some universities colleges. are getting sure. right
2: yeah yeah universities should i agree i think universities should be taking the i'd rather i'd feel a lot more comfortable if universities are, are public institutions were taking the lead on this project but this
0: is this is part of the system in minnesota and i was a big champion of the community technical colleges Basically, the theme of your book is that this educational divide is in very, very, very large part responsible for the political divide that we have now. And you point to statistics in terms of men and women uh, until 1980 voted the same um, on Democratic and Republican, right? Yeah, pretty much. And then with Reagan changed. And now it's that that gap is has widened a lot.
2: Well, it's, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of interplay between there's a lot of uh, yeah interplay, I guess I would call it. You know, that um, there's a gender gap in politics, but and there's a college gap.
1: Mm-hmm. But gender people, gap in
2: college, right? But yeah. people for yeah, right. People forget that sixty percent of college enrollment now is female, mm-hmm. uh, which is a whole complicated issue, right? Uh, so so those two things go hand in hand, and 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 you know, and and maybe that explains to some degree. You know, this white male resentment culture, you know, why they are so terrified of the feminization of culture. uh, And and I think they probably associate that with college degrees. So it's it's a complicated issue. And, you know, I mean, I wrote this book because I think we just weren't talking about it enough. I mean, political writers... Say, oh, we, well, it looks like there's this college and non-college divide, but they don't, but they don't really say why. And uh, you know, there's a lot of good academic writing about how do we fix college, but colleges seem kind of blind to the impact that they're having on the outside society, and and we need to have this conversation. Yeah.
0: No, this this is this is the first book I've read that so definitively outlines what this educational divide, this college, and, and the role that college education plays in it and what how it's uh created this political divide and cultural divide in this country and that that's why this is a very valuable book uh after the ivory tower falls will bunch thank you so much for for writing this book and for joining me and also get off the phone yes turn i the know phone I, I, off. Thought, you turn I thought the phone. i
2: silenced i thought i silenced it I'm well you know
0: i've that. done that before yeah, yeah. and always whenever that happens yeah. and it happens when i on my side here and i i have a line that you can use if that happens to you again which is i'm sorry i need a liver
2: <laughs> uh i might actually Who knows? Yeah, I use that next the, yeah, time yeah. if you're on another podcast <laughs> it goes off will, yeah. i'm sorry i'm yeah. waiting for a liver <laughs> that'll 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 do that'll
0: that'll get you that'll get you uh it'll buy you one
2: yeah well that was two unfortunately yeah yeah. um so um thank you so much for your interest (laughs) it was it was was, was fun talking to you
0: well i i hope you enjoyed uh listening that beautiful music is by leo Kotke, the great leo Kotke. i want to thank peter ogburn for producing this podcast we'll talk again next week Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.
1: This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients. Popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels.